0: So Father, we pray as we come to your word now that you would indeed be magnified, Lord, as the person of Christ is revealed through the wonders of your word, Lord, that you would be magnified not just out here in our sound but in here in our hearts. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Please take your seats, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you, band. Last week, I did something a little unusual, and that was I started the year off by giving you a sneak preview of the next three series that we're looking at in the months ahead, probably for the first third of the year, and today is the start of the first of those themes, which is loved and loving. Somebody uh, I heard recently tell a story, I think it was not a real story, I think it was a joke, um, but I thought it illustrated perfectly what I'm about to say this morning. And the story, in the story, there was a man that was leaving a building site. It was a busy building site, that people coming and going all the time, and there was a security guard on the entrance of the building site, and this man that was leaving the building site had a wheelbarrow, and in the wheelbarrow was a little box, and as he wheeled it towards the security guard to leave the building site, the security guard said, stop, what have you got there? He said, I've just got a little box. He said, what's in the box? He said, well, I've just, uh, understand that the carpenters they make lots of sawdust and I've just collected some of the sawdust and put it in the little box and I'm just taking it away is that okay and the guy said is that all you got so he checked the box and indeed all that was in there was a little bit of sawdust so he said okay off you go well the next day the same gentleman began to walk out of the building site with a wheelbarrow and a box and the security guard said hey I remember you from yesterday what's in the box today He said, well, uh, you know, the same as yesterday, just sawdust shavings, uh, wood shavings. So he lifted the box, and that's indeed what was in there. So he said, okay, off you go. Day three, this guy walked out towards the exit of the building site, again with a wheelbarrow, a little box. He said, what's in the box today? He said, there's just some sawdust. So he said, let's have a look. I can't believe you're taking sawdust out three days in a row. So he opened the box, and indeed inside the box was sawdust. Day four, he walks out, and as he... Comes to the exit, the security guard's there. He stops him He says, come on now, four days, what's in the box? He said, honestly, it's just some sawdust. So he showed him the box and it was just some sawdust. Day five, he started approaching the security guard with the, with the wheelbarrow and the guy said, whoa, 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 just stop here. What are you really playing at? What are you doing? I cannot believe that you are coming here every day just to take away a little bit of sawdust. If you tell me what you're doing, I'll keep it just between the two of us. No consequences. And the guy said, I'm stealing wheelbarrows. <laughs> you know, sometimes we look at the small things and miss the big things. And over these next few weeks, I'm going to tell you about the biggest thing that there is in the scriptures. It's not that the detail is not important. It's not that the smaller matters of our life are inconsequential, but there's something bigger that we need to understand and we need to comprehend, and that's what we're going to do with this theme. There might be a myriad of things that are concerning you right now, but I want to help you see that there is a bigger picture. As we look in this book, from the very beginning of Genesis right to the end of Revelation, there is a big big theme that becomes obvious, and this theme is the theme of marriage. Marriage is revealed in the Bible as a central plank for human society. We're shown a few things about marriage. We're shown that marriage is between a man and a woman, it's lifelong, it's exclusive It's the only right context for sexual relationships. We see that marriage begins with a wedding, and a wedding ceremony is the celebration of this couple coming together and making their promises, their commitments, their covenantal promises that they will be intimate with each other alone and devoted to each other. Marriage is, in this book, it's designed to be an unbreakable covenant, an unbreakable relationship that, as the Bible teaches in marriage, two become one flesh. It's not one plus one any longer. It's one. But let me just dispel some things that you're wondering right now. Because you might be thinking, ah, this series is all about how to have a better marriage. No, I'm not bringing you a marriage seminar through these series, although those are good things. I'm also not elevating marriage over singleness. Church has been a very good place over the years at elevating marriage over singleness. We forget that our Lord and Savior was single when he was on the earth, and he was very fulfilled. And there's a danger that, you know, I think in church life sometimes couples seem to get more opportunities than single people. And I want to let you know that's not what we believe. The Apostle Paul said, it's good if you can be single. You can actually serve the Lord without the clutters and the worries of this world or less of them, certainly. So I'm not elevating marriage over singleness. I'm not doing a marriage seminar. I'm also not condemning anyone who has experienced the trauma of divorce or failed relationships. Bible tells me if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. I'm not elevating marriage as the fix-it for all your problems. In fact, one of the greatest crises that we have in our world is our world is full of broken people, and broken people think, if only I could meet someone else who is broken, then together we will make a whole. You don't. You make a bigger mess. You're double broken. And you've got all the complications around that that impact you. So marriage is not the fix to all the crisis and the trauma and the difficulty of your life. I'm not, in this series, going to give you five top tips on how to have the most wonderful marriage. If you are in a marriage, invest in it, believe in it, read around it, get input and advice, do things right and get that, but that's not primarily what this series is going to be. But... I am going to point to marriage because in doing so, it reveals something phenomenal about our relationship with God. Marriage is like the telescope that when we look through its lens, it reveals something far off about God. Marriage is not a convenient and an accidental metaphor in the Scriptures. It's a designed, intentional illustration of greater love that God has set up to reveal something to you and to me. In Genesis, we see marriage. In Revelation, we see a future marriage. More of that in a moment. And in the books, in between those two ends of the scripture, we see marriage used time and time again as an illustration of our relationship with God. Jesus described himself as a bridegroom. He was asked a question by some of his detractors, as to why his disciples were not fasting. Let me just put this as an aside. This week, Nita and I are going to be spending the week fasting and praying, and if any of you want to join us, we would love to invite you. We're going to be posting videos each day this week on social media with some prayer points, and we would love to encourage you to take some time out of your day, maybe change some of your rhythms and patterns this week, and just spend some time with the Lord. But Jesus' disciples were asked, Why aren't they fasting? And Jesus answered this in Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 9. Jesus replied, Do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with their groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus described himself as the groom. It wasn't the only thing Jesus said about marriage. As a parable or as a metaphor of the kingdom, we read he described the kingdom of heaven as like a king preparing a banquet for his son. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, he says, The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. He spoke more about this. He told another parable about ten virgins. In Matthew chapter 25, he said, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet their bridegroom. And we see this parallel of marriage not just being illustrated through the words of Jesus, but being illustrated throughout, let's go back to the Old Testament. You remember the moment when Moses was up on the mountain, and the glory of God surrounded that encounter and that experience. And the people of God at the bottom, while Moses was getting the Ten Commandments at the top, at the bottom of the mountain, they were gathering their earrings and their jewelry and clubbing it all together and melting it down to make a golden calf. Do you remember that moment? And as they made that golden calf, we read that there was a reaction that God had towards his people. It was a reaction of jealousy. It was the sort of jealousy that a husband might feel when his wife is unfaithful. Because God is passionate in his devotion to his people. He declared this, I will be your God and you will be my people. Those words are like him standing at the front, surrounded by all the wedding guests and pledging his future and his commitment and his intimacy to the bride, to his people. But it wasn't just that moment. There were many other moments in the Old Testament. The prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, they all use some very provocative language about the relationship that God has with his people. They accused the Israelites of being adulterous, that their chasing after other gods and other things to satisfy them was likened to adultery. So we've seen in the life of Jesus, his reference to marriage, we've seen in the Old Testament, but what if we go after the death the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, what if we look later into the New Testament? Well, the Apostle Paul said some words that often get quoted at weddings. In Ephesians 5, he says these words, as the scripture says, a man leaves his father and his mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is An illustration of the way that Christ and his church are one. We were made in God's image. We know that. But earthly marriage was made in the image of his own marriage with his people. God didn't look and think, I need a parable. I need a metaphor. I need something that will demonstrate to the world how committed and how loving I am to them. Oh, look, they've got this thing called marriage. Maybe I'll use that. That's not the way it started. God gave marriage as the metaphor. He gave it as the demonstration of a bigger picture. And if we skip Forward further to the prophetic book of Revelation. We read this account in Revelation 19. Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. Who's that bride? Bride of Christ. There are many titles you might take on as a believer. You might be called Christian. You might, in your workplace, be called Bible Basher. Or Chandelier Swinging Pentecostal. There are all sorts of attributes. You might call us saints. Some people call me pastor. John calls me bishop. Whatever name you take, there's one name supersedes them all. Bride. Hello, bride. If you've been married, particularly you ladies, and you remember the anticipation of that day. Oh, there was, unless you're from a culture that maybe has arranged marriages, but that's a different story. But in this context, I remember the joy and the excitement and the nervousness of the day that was to come i didn't get married because i was told to because it was expected because there was a duty i was getting married because i was in love and i couldn't think of another person i wanted to spend the rest of my days with Yay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> It's okay, she's got a mask on, so it doesn't really count. (laughs) We're getting married. Marriage, our marriage to Christ is the bigger picture that runs throughout the story of God. Every relationship on this earth, no matter how good or how bad, is pointing to this marriage with God. It's the only relationship that can fully satisfy. It's the only relationship that truly fills the longing in our hearts. Jesus didn't just come to forgive you of your sins, to give you a better lifestyle, to improve your social status, to make you a good neighbor, to make you a do-gooder. Jesus didn't come just to do those things. He came because he wanted to marry you. And it's not a sign of duty, it's a sign of love. But you might say, Mark, you seem to have made this deeply personal. And Mark, we just read in Ephesians that the Apostle Paul talked about Christ marrying his church. Not me individually. Well, that's true, yes. The bride of Christ will be the worldwide historic church. Throughout all of history, all who have called upon the name of the Lord and are saved are the bride of Christ. Throughout all of history, there are millions and millions of us across the world that have been wedded to Christ and His purposes. But also, the bride of Christ is also the church today in the UK. Even the church In the southwest is the bride of Christ. Even rediscover this morning, you're the bride of Christ. And as part of the church, it's also appropriate to apply it personally into our lives. Jesus is a lover of his church, but the scriptures also describe him as the lover of your souls. As the whole church is the spouse of Christ, so are you. And it's into this truth that in the weeks ahead, we are going to delve into the greatest love song of them all. If I came for a meal at your home, and at the end of it, I said, that was a meal of meals, or if I had gone on holiday and someone said, how was your holiday? I said, it was the holiday of holidays. <laughs> you know that what I'm saying is an elevation that this wasn't just another meal. This wasn't just another holiday. These were the best. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at the song yeah. of songs. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's going to be a fascinating book. We've got some awkward bits in there, there's mentions of breasts, there's mention of intimacy, there's mention of kisses, it's all going on. But there's a big, big narrative. And it's the song of songs because it captures this big picture of the marriage of Christ and his people. We're going to love this journey. And as we look at it in the weeks ahead, we're going to see that it captures this most incredible of love stories of Christ and his church. And I believe we're going to be encouraged, stirred, and enraptured by his desire for us. As I felt stirred... To make this the first theme of the year, I believe that there's something in the purpose of God that I'm not going to stir something up through my words or through the construction of the series. But God has decided to reveal afresh to his people that his banner over you is love. And all I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be describing what you're going to be encountering. I'm going to be describing what the Spirit is doing. I'm going to be putting words that, a bit like when, the, when the, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, he didn't, uh, he didn't t- tell people what was going to happen. He said, this is that. Yeah. He described what was taking place. And I have faith in my heart to believe That in your life over these next few weeks, there's going to be a fresh understanding of the revelation of the love of God. That the banner of Him over your life is going to be understood to be clearly love. And there's going to be something beautiful that comes from that. I believe, and it's my prayer, that we will move from religion to relationship. We will be motivated by a desire... For the Lord, not by duty. We will be captivated by the longing that He has for us, His people. We will also find out who we are because we know whose we are. Have you seen my husband? They talk about trophy brides. People that make you look good. Of course, I'm married. One of those. Almost 30 years ago. This will be our 30th anniversary this year, and it's been a wonderful journey. And um, we've never argued. Except, I'm preparing for this series. We had a humdinger on Friday, didn't we? I probably shouldn't say that, but I just want to be open I'm preparing for this and and (laughs) (laughs) your marriage has its complications but at the very epicenter is that there's a love and a commitment and I believe the greatest single thing you can know in your life, the biggest thing, is marriage and love and exclusivity with the lover of your souls. And as we unpack this in the weeks ahead, I believe we're going to see that increasingly. Nothing else satisfies like Jesus. Almost come to the close of this this morning, but let me just pick one verse as a teaser for you for a song from the Song of Songs. Chapter one, verse two. It says this: "Kiss me, and kiss me again, and again, and again. Keep kissing me." Is that awkward? For your love is sweeter than the best this world can offer. I've tasted other things, but I've tasted nothing like you, Lord. Lover, keep kissing me. Because in relationship, there's desire that grows. Desire for more. And I'm convinced that some of you think that God loves you because he's contractually obliged. You don't deserve it. But he said, he made those commitments, I'm going to love everybody. So you think, well, he has to. He's being trapped into a corner where he has to love me. If that's your understanding of how God feels about you, That needs to change. Why? Because it's a lie. It's not true. God loves you. And he desires you. He chases you down. He longs for you. Kiss me. Kiss me again. If the Holy Spirit was to write a letter to you, and of course, it would be a different letter to the letters that other people might write, because other people might write letters about what they see, about their experiences with you. They might know something and have engagement with you in some area, and they might reference that in their letter. But if the Holy Spirit writes a letter to you, then He sees your heart. He knows everything. So I think as a result of that, there's a possibility that his letter would be different. Over 30 years ago now, when Nietzsche and I were, and I don't know what the modern word for this is, so I'm going to use the word that we used when we were caught in. I feel desperately old-fashioned saying that word but we were caught in. And Nita was working with an evangelist who every week would travel around the country and go somewhere different. And I was working with another evangelist that every week would travel around the country and be somewhere different. And we were both with two different evangelists, both traveling different places. It was before, now some of you are not going to believe this, but there was a day when mobile phones didn't exist. They just were like, they were the things of science fiction. And... Thirty-odd years ago was that time. But not only did mobile phones not exist, I didn't have email. I'm sure it was, I think it was invented, but it wasn't something that most people had access to. So we did it the most high-tech way we could in, that, in those days. That as we would go to one place, we would find a way of, of communicating to the other person the address of where we were staying, and we would quickly write a letter So that it got there before the seven days was up, before they left. We'd also, in that letter, put the phone number for the local telephone (laughs) box. And a time that we would be there. Be at the telephone box at quarter past six. Phone me. And I'd be loaded with my ten pence pieces. (laughs) Standing in that phone box. And if I got there and there was someone else in the phone box. Come on, don't you realize I have an appointment with... The love of my life. (laughs) We've moved around quite a lot over the years, and Nita very conscientiously kept every one of those letters I wrote her. I've hidden them for years. And a few months ago, she said, could you get those letters? I haven't reread them. I'm almost a bit cringy about rereading them, because I'm sure... A 16-year-old writing those at the time would have been filled with all sorts of naivety. But I do remember some common denominators about those letters. I never once wrote any of those letters because I had to. I desired to. This was an expression of love. And... Maybe as you consider a letter from the Holy Spirit coming through the mailbox of your heart, maybe you think that the message comes through more from like an Ofsted inspector that wants to tell you all the things you could be doing better at. Or maybe, you know, there's some other understanding that, you know, God has to speak to his church so he'll point a few things out and encourage me a little bit. But I want to guarantee you Every word he writes and speaks over you is love. And when we go to that last book of the Bible again, the book of Revelation, we read that there were seven letters written to seven churches. And in those, there wasn't the offset inspector, it wasn't the critic, it wasn't the coach, come on church, you can do better. It was a lover. And the lover would... Point out things that we're so proud of, so delighted about in the church, so in awe of how they have grown. And then there might be some expressions of some areas they'd lost sight on a few things. And in Revelation chapter 2 verse 4, in one of these seven letters, this is one of the things that the loving pen of God said. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. As the Holy Spirit knows your heart, you might be one of the first to complete your daily Bible reading plans and leave a comment. You might turn up at all the prayer meetings. You might be understood to be loving and kind and generous with people around you. You might be positive with your words and your affirmation. But what sits right at the very epicenter of your heart? Is it duty? Or is it desire? And I believe the Lord wants to baptize us afresh with his love. He wants a church... That's mobilized by love. Come back to the love you had at first. Maybe the band could come and join me. If this letter is a letter that the Holy Spirit could send to you, come back to your first love. I urge you to empty your hearts of the affairs that you have been conducting. With the things of this world. The unfaithfulness, the looking to other things to satisfy, the idols, put them down. You'll never find more love than you find in Christ. Lay them down. Come back to the lover of your soul. Come back and find grace. Come back and know that you are loved. This is the bigger picture. Everything else is detail. This is the big truth. Just close your eyes a moment, would you? Kiss me and kiss me again. For your love is sweeter than wine. You are the object of his affections. You are loved. And you can flow with that love to one another. band are going to lead us in a song called reckless love it's caught it a little bit of controversy people say God doesn't do reckless things he understands it's not a risk it's he understands the end from the beginning why would he do something reckless it's bad theology but I think it's reckless in as much as it's so wild and so crazy We can't fully compute it with our rational, logical minds. It goes beyond the bounds of our understanding that the creator would come and be the created. That he would give himself. That's wild. It's it's beyond extravagant. It's crazy. And yet it's true. And I'm going to invite us to stand, sing this song, and just let the truth of this banner over your life, let it be something that you find fresh joy.